Good morning. Hello, my name is Matt. It's good to be with you all. We are, hey guys, people from out of town, that's nice. Uh, we are wrapping up our series on showing compassion uh, to others, and I want to end with a really simple but important idea, and that is as followers of Jesus, as the church, as the body of Christ, we are actually called to demonstrate to a broader world, to a watching world, who God is. And that one of the primary ways that we do that, according to Jesus, is by actually the good that we do to those around us. That the way that we love others in action as a church, not just individually, that the way that we serve, the way that we show compassion to the poor and the vulnerable and the people who need it most, that that would actually help point other people to God. Jesus says it this way in Matthew chapter 5, and he's talking to his followers, which includes all of us. He says, starting in verse 14, you are the light of the world. That you, by the way, is plural, like you together, all of us as his followers. You are the light. Uh, light, of course, brings warmth. It brings healing. It's a metaphor for goodness. It's a metaphor for hope. He goes on, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, I wish Jesus would have been maybe a little more specific about how we're to let our light shine. But we get enough here to get that it is tied very closely to our actions, that we're to do this specifically, he says, through uh, our good deeds. He doesn't say what those are. He doesn't give examples. But if we just step back and look at the life of Jesus, which is what we've been trying to do the last few weeks, we get a pretty good idea of what he has in mind, uh, that the way that we care for the, the vulnerable the way we serve other people, the way that we love our neighbor, which again, Jesus defines as the person in front of you who's in need, our willingness to be moved with compassion, involving our time, our energy, our money, our attention. Jesus says, you all collectively, you are to live in such a way, to let your light shine before others. You are called to bring light, warmth, goodness that people would actually Glorify God as a result. Uh, that just means that they would turn their focus off of themselves or whatever it is that they're doing or believing and, and go, huh, maybe I should consider God. Actually be drawn to God. I'm listening maybe in a new way or actually taking steps uh, toward him. So he's saying that our witness, the witness of our lives should have a noticeable effect on the broader culture and world around us. We have an ancient letter, actually, from the second century. And it's an anonymous Roman citizen writing to another Roman who's kind of a philosopher uh, named Diognetus. And you get the sense, if you read the whole thing, that neither of these guys are Christians. They're just discussing, as they've looked around in their culture and they've seen kind of this growing movement of Jesus followers, they're just making observations. 
And after listing a number of ways that these Christians, well, they do some things differently. They, they make some different choices. They seem to live differently. We don't understand all of that. However, here's the other things that we have noticed, the good that's undeniable that they've done in society as a whole. And so the writer says to this philosopher, uh, this scholar, Diognetus, in conclusion, he says, what the soul is in the body, the Christians are in the world. Yeah, that these Jesus people, they're a little bit different. We're not sure we totally believe everything that they believe, but there's something about them. There's something undeniable about the positive effect that they're having on the world. Fast forward about, I don't know, 1,900 years. Is this what we're known for today? Is this how people would describe us, our reputation? And how are we doing uh, as a church? I think a lot of times we'll read this passage and we we see where Jesus says, you are called to be the light of the world, and there's something in us that assumes that Jesus is telling us to let people know the truth of what I believe, that he's calling us to kind of make a lot of points in culture, and that's how we're going to make a difference. That's not not what he's saying. When I was growing up, it's, it's not that the Christians that I knew or the church I was a part of, it's not that we weren't doing this. Because there was examples, we're, we're trying, we're out trying to serve occasionally. I would just say it's not what we were most known for. That we collectively, as in kind of the stream of Christianity that I was a part of, we were known for some other things. Uh, one of those things was the list of things that we were against, and we wanted everybody to know. Uh, and so I was a part of a church tradition, and there was a lot of good with this too, but we were against a whole bunch of stuff, and we had leaflets, and we had flyers, and we had voters' guides, and we were against the lottery, and we were against Cabbage Patch dolls. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why, but we were more supposed to support them because of something, maybe the company who made them. I remember that when I was a kid, there were boycotts against Disney World. Remember that? Uh, there was a boycott against Walden Bookstore because they had um, the magazines that they sold, adult magazines. And look, they're out of business. We did it. We did it. Yeah. We got rid of pornography. Good for us. Uh, then there, there was Harry Potter. Remember that? Because of the magic and the sorcery and all that. Lord of the Rings, that's fine. That's practically the gospel. But, but Harry Potter, no. Uh, in the last decade or so, I remember there was a thing about Starbucks. One of the reasons was because of their cups. We're, okay, so we are going to be the light of the world by making points has been one strategy. And I would submit to you that it hasn't worked all that well. I, I do find that ironic that most of the time when there's like a notable Christian or Christian group and they're going to organize a boycott, a boycott. Um, it's funny what it's not about. It's not about dangerous working conditions or unethical business practices or like, it's, it's never about advocating for the poor. It's usually about a disagreement or a perceived attack, meaning we have a difference of opinion on a social or religious issue. My point is they almost never work. 
And as a result, we become known for what we're against. Uh, we've all heard the, the stats, the polls about what non-Christians think about Christians. Uh, there's a national study that just came out last year called Jesus in America, released in 2022, so very recently. And it found, and this isn't, wasn't surprising to me at all, do you believe Jesus was an important spiritual figure? 84% of all Americans said yes. Yeah, we think Jesus was an important spiritual figure. Although somewhat alarmingly, and this is just a side note, I have to share this, the study also found, and I like how they word this, nearly all Christians say, nearly all Christians say Jesus is an important figure in their life. So 88% of all Christians say Jesus is important. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know what to think about that. It just seems like that should be 100%. 100% of people who self-identify as Christians would probably say, should say Jesus is important. Anyway, the same study found that Christians uh, describe themselves as being giving, 57% say, compassionate, 56%. Loving, 55, respectful, 50, and friendly, 49. And again, I had mixed feelings about this because this is what we're saying. We get to say what we want about how we view ourselves. And we're kind of like, ah, half? Half of us are doing that? So that made me nervous. Um, meanwhile, non-Christians associate Christians with characteristics like hypocrisy, 50%, being judgmental, 49, uh, self-righteousness and arrogance. Again, 84% of Americans think Jesus was an important spiritual figure. In survey after survey, you basically find the majority of Americans, the majority of Americans have no issue with Jesus. They have issues with, with Christians. To paraphrase one headline that I read, Jesus consistently pulls higher than his followers. I think is a good way to say that, yeah. We sometimes act like Jesus said, let your light shine before others that they may hear about your beliefs and glorify your Father in heaven. There's that old saying, which I think is true, that people really don't care about what you know. People really don't care about what you believe they know that you actually care about them. Um, there are, fascinating statistic here, anywhere from 1,000 to 40,000 different Protestant denominations, depending on how you put things in subcategories and how far you, how many derivatives there are. But there's a lot. And what we find in all of these denominations is there is no shortage of things, beliefs, opinions to fight about. And I guess what I've noticed, and I've, I've paid attention, especially in this past year, almost nobody, I hate to, this is going to be sad for some of us, almost nobody out there cares about our internal debates. Nobody really cares about when we get kind of, well, we're going to start a new denomination because this is the correct translation of Scripture, or this is the right view on baptism, or this is the right end times, by and large, most people who aren't Christians, and even a lot of people who are, will drive past a church that says Methodist or Presbyterian or Baptist and not be able to give you one single theological distinctive that that group prides themselves on. 
It's just not relevant to the, to the watching world. All the things that were, you're on the inside seem so important. And again, I'm not saying beliefs don't matter. Some of it matters a lot, and some of it is really important. It's just at the end of the day, at the end of the day, according to Jesus, that is not what's going to draw people to him. That's not it. It's not what's going to change the world. There's supposed to be something about the way you and I live that when people look at it, when they see us, they notice whether they're a God person or not, whether they would describe themselves as religious or, or not, or they have questions or wherever they are, where they would just go, that group, that church, that, those Christians, what they're doing and the difference that they're making, it is undeniably good. It's making a difference in our neighborhood, our community. It's making our world a better place. That the way that you and I are to let our light shine is not by making points. It's by actually making a difference. And people may not ultimately believe what you and I believe. But they should still be able to recognize, hey, you know what? There's a little more light here than there was before they got here. There's a little more light in this dark place or with this need or among this underserved population than there was before that group, those Christians, that church got involved. Like our city has benefited from having your church here among us. A little history as a reminder. Uh, after Jesus' death, after his resurrection, the church was born. And I just want to remind us that the church, just regular followers of Jesus, empowered by his spirit, who really believed they were called to be the light of the world, they went out and they began to actually change the world. And here's what's so amazing. When you actually read the Gospels, when you read Acts, when you read what Paul says in some of his letters, in a lot of ways, they, they're giving us the, like the roadmap for how to, how to do this. And again, just so you know where it all goes, they actually like kind of pull it off. Like within 300 years, within 300 years of basically the death of Jesus, the Roman Empire pretty much embraced Christianity. And I know what you're thinking. Well, we don't have 300 years. Well, yeah, we do. We got all kinds of time. I mean, maybe we don't, but someone does. Within 300 years, think about this. Christianity toppled an empire in terms of an ideology. Christianity toppled an empire in terms of a religious system that had been in place for thousands of years. It's an amazing, amazing story. Especially when you remember the early Christians, they didn't have any platform. They had like no money, very little organization. They had pretty much no leverage in their broader culture. And on top of that, they faced incredible opposition. They were misunderstood. They were falsely accused. I mean, you think Christians get bad press today. Nothing compared to what these early Christians faced. They were regularly accused by the Romans of being atheists. That seems ironic to us, doesn't it? Because the Christians didn't embrace the pantheon of Roman gods. Romans said, you guys, you guys are a bunch of atheists. They're like, well, 
Because not really. Uh, they were accused of being cannibals. Did you know that? That was a, a big issue that the Romans had with the, with the Christians because eat this bread, drink this, my body, stuff Jesus had said about communion. And they overhear that and they're picking up on stuff. And they're like, what are you guys doing behind closed doors? The early Christians were accused by and large of incest by the Romans because the Romans said, look, they're always calling each other brother and sister. And that's weird because they're not related. So what are they doing? Like a bunch of degenerates is what they thought. None of these things were true. They were totally unfair based on gross distortions and misunderstandings. But what's interesting is, as time went on, these believers just kept on trying to be a light to the world around them. They focused instead on trying to live quiet, godly lives. They weren't pushing their beliefs on everyone. In fact, as a persecuted minority group, they wouldn't have been successful at that anyway. And they spent very little time defending themselves. They actually didn't try to seek political power and influence. That wasn't going to happen. They didn't try to legislate their beliefs through the Roman Senate. They didn't expect non-Christians to act like Christians. They just lived out their faith. They focused on making a difference, on caring for the poor and the vulnerable and the overlooked. And over time, people started to notice. In fact, centuries ago, uh, the church father Tertullian said, it is our care of the helpless, our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of our op opponents. By the way, it's not that the Romans knew nothing of compassion. They knew about compassion. It's just that for them, compassion had nothing to do with like the gods. Because for them, the gods demanded sacrifices, offerings, not acts of charity. And Jesus had actually said the most important thing, and these two things go together, is to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus also said, quoting God, I desire mercy. Mercy, not sacrifice. But again, it wasn't an elaborate program. They didn't have a big strategy. It wasn't a great teaching. It wasn't some really cool building that, that grew the church. It was Christians who took seriously, who embodied the gospel and lived it out sacrificially. There's a sociologist, Rodney Stark, who argued that one of the primary reasons for the spread of the Jesus movement was actually the way his followers cared for sick people. Prior to this, in the ancient world, if you got sick and you didn't have money, you didn't have family who like had to care for you, you were done. It was over. During the reign of Marcus Aurelius, which was around 165 Common Era, there was a, a widespread epidemic, and many speculate that it was smallpox. And during that time, it killed 25 to 30% of the population, including, eventually, Marcus Aurelius himself. A little bit less than a century later, there was a second epidemic at its height. 5,000 people were reported to, to be dying in Rome alone. It ended up, went on, killed another third of the Roman Empire, wiped them out. And for the most part, people responded in panic. 
like people do. Uh, it was ugly. In fact, Homer did not offer any guidance in his writing about what to do in this situation. There are no commands from the Greek god Zeus to care for dying people you don't know and to put your life at risk. The Greek historian Thucydides, he had written about how people in Athens had responded to an earlier plague. He said they died with no one to look after them. Indeed, there were many houses in which all the inhabitants perished through lack of any intention for care. The bodies of the dying were heaped up one on top of the other. No fear of God or law of man had a restraining influence. The exact same thing was happening in Rome. The rules were out the door because none of the gods the Romans worshiped said stuff like, you, you need to care for the sick, whether or not you know them, whether or not you're related. I mean, parents were throwing children who weren't dead out into the street to avoid to hoping to avoid contagion. People were betraying friends. Everyone was looking out for themselves. The most famous doctor of this era, a guy named Galen, when the plague hit, he's gone. He just took off for the hills. But there was a small community of people who remembered they followed a man who would touch lepers while they were unclean, who told us, told his disciples to heal the sick, who, who redefined for, for everyone who our neighbor actually is and what it means to love our neighbor. And this little community of women and men, they had no money. Again, they had no power. But they remembered the one they followed who said this, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Meaning the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the sick, the imprisoned. Taught us that when we do this, when we care for the poor and the vulnerable and the needy, in doing that, we're caring for God. When we show compassion, that, that Jesus himself is present in the most humble, the lowly, the hurting. Dionysius, a, a third century bishop of Alexandria, he wrote about the actions of Christians, like how Christians responded during these plagues. And he says this, heedless of the danger... They took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them, with the sick, departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Because they believed and they followed Jesus who rose from the dead and therefore they didn't fear death. And when you don't fear death, turns out there's not a whole lot to fear. You're free to love with abandon. And so they decided we've got to serve people. That's what our founder did. He said he gave his life. The Son of Man came to serve, to give his life for others. In the 300s, I mean, it just goes on and on. There was a follower of Jesus by the name of Basil. And he got an idea because in the ancient world, ancient world leprosy was a death sentence. You got it. You had to go around unclean. You're isolated. It's over. Nobody, no one would risk uh, being associated with you. And Basil had an idea. What if we built a place where people with leprosy could come and be cared for? We don't have any money? No problem. We'll raise the money. In fact, in one of the most famous sermons of that era, it was actually by a guy named Gregory of Nyssa, who was Basil's brother. 
He went around and they preached these sermons to raise money for a place to care for lepers. And, and Gregory said, let's take care of Christ while there's still time. Let's show Christ honor. Let's minister to his needs. Let's clothe Christ, meaning these people who are in need. By the way, that's the beginning of what would become, come to be known as hospitals. The Council of Nyssa, one of the early church councils, said, wherever there's going to be a major church, there has to be a hospice. There has to be a place where the sick and the poor can be cared for. That's an idea that seems obvious to us now, doesn't it? But it wasn't always that way. That's why, by the way, hospitals today have names like Good Samaritan or Good Shepherd or St. Francis or whatever. Eventually, as Christians responded to the hungry and the sick and the poor, eventually, outsiders began to take notice. By the late 4th century, uh, Emperor Julian the Apostate, he did not give himself that title, but he decided as empress because what he wanted to do didn't work. He decided as emperor there needed to be a revival of paganism, classic Roman religion, that Christianity, he said, had gone too far, and so he decided to fund from his own wealth as emperor. He wanted to build these pagan temples and get the priesthood going again, and it was a total failure. We have actually a letter that he wrote where he's complaining about the fact that Christians are doing so well that he couldn't get the pagan priesthood going again, and he kind of gives the priest grief for letting the Christians show them up. That's kind of fun. He says, why do we observe that it is there, the Christians, benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and the pretended holiness of their lives, so he didn't buy that part, uh, that have done the most to increase atheism, that is, unbelief in the Roman gods. For it is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg, and the impious Galileans, that's what he calls Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see our people lack aid from us. These Christians are making us look really bad. Caring for our own people. We're not even doing that. My point is, they actually in many ways actually changed the world because they did what Jesus said. Not perfectly, Right? These aren't perfect people. They're ordinary people. They didn't always get it right. My point is this. If you could have been there the day after Jesus died, if you could have seen the Roman Empire, this is the day after Jesus died, with its Pax Romana, its Roman peace, its 250,000 miles of roads, its influence that went from Europe to Asia to Africa, its, its reputation of dominance, um, its social status that would be envied throughout the Mediterranean. So if you were to see all of that, and then you were to look at a few dozen failed, I don't know, frightened, defeated, confused, former followers of an executed carpenter. And if on that day someone had asked you to place a bet on which group would still be around 2,000 years later. The smart bet would have been on the Roman Empire. And yet, 
here we are. In a world every bit as complicated as ours, with the odds in many ways more significantly stacked against them, here's how they did it. And again, it wasn't complicated. They just took Jesus' words to heart. And they went to work loving people around them. They tried to love their neighbor as themselves. They cared for the poor. They looked after the sick. They made sure everyone's needs were met. They were incredibly generous. And people noticed. And after a while, it became more and more difficult to dismiss. And when they had the opportunity, and they did, they explained the hope that they had in Jesus to those who saw them live differently and were intrigued and wanted to know, why do you do this? And they got to tell them. But the early Christians knew if we don't first live this out, we're done. It's a non-starter. Paul had said, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels, you could put anything in that list. If I memorize the Bible, if I have the perfect theology, on and on and on. But do not have love. I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. They knew that the point was to make a difference. Otherwise, they're just like an amp screeching, producing feedback. Nobody wanted to hear. Which brings us to us today. We want to be a church that makes a difference in this community, in Muncie, in downtown, in Nicaragua, where we're focused uh, for several years here internationally. Not so that we can say, look at us. Not to say, look how great we are. But to actually demonstrate who God is. Jesus says to you and to me, to us collectively, you are the light of the world where God has put you. The other thing that I, th I want to mention about light is, and we take this for granted uh, today, this thing that brings, you know, warmth, healing, goodness, and all that. In the ancient world, of course, you didn't just walk in a room and flip on a switch. You didn't just walk through your house and turn on every single light like my kids do, like they're not the ones paying for it. <laughs> in, the, in the ancient world, you'd have like a, a, a lamp with oil in it. And that oil was very, very costly. It wasn't like today. I think if you had to go come up with oil all by yourself. Uh, yeah, that'd be hard. Uh, a one scholar that I read said that to burn an oil lamp for 15 minutes was basically the equivalent of a, a day's wages. 15 minutes of light. So I think the other thing people would have picked up on, and yeah, we're the light of the world, and that's great, is this is actually going to cost you. This is costly in terms of time, energy, attention, effort, sacrifice. John says it this way, this is how we know what love is. Here's how costly. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and then he invites us to do the same for others, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity, and that's literally, but shows no compassion on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions 
and in truth. So don't just pretend to love when what you're really doing is going through the motions. He says, take the risk. Open yourself up to others in sacrificial love and generosity. Put your money, your time, your availability where your mouth is. James, the brother of Jesus, says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. And whatever comes after this, we should pay attention to with an intro like that. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. He says, you want to know what kind of religion that God looks at and goes, hey, I'm good with that. I can get behind that. I'm on board with that. It's the kind that's demonstrated in action, especially for the poor and the vulnerable and those who can't help themselves. What all of this means is that whatever it is that we're doing here, it's more than like songs and a sermon. It's more than coming to church and listening and maybe singing a little bit and, and, and looking at scripture and then going home. If all of this isn't pushing us to love God and then to love our neighbor as a result, then we've missed the point. We've missed the point entirely. Last year, um, if you've been around here for any length of time, you know that we had an emphasis. It was called a year of spiritual formation. And looking back, we made some great progress. There was lots of areas of growth between the rooted experience that we had with groups and then deeper in the fall. There's tons of growth, tons to celebrate. A lot of that, not all of it, a lot of that was in the category of how can we grow in our love for God? That we can love him more with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. But of course, the idea, and we knew this all along, is that that should compel us out to love our neighbor as ourselves. Um, it's both and. I've noticed that uh, I think it's a lot of times people's personality. We gravitate toward one or the other. And so there are those of us here who it's like, I want to do another Bible study, and, and I want to, we need to do more prayer and learn more and sit and contemplate and be with Jesus. That, and yes, I just want to say yes, all of that is true. We're going to love God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We all have room to grow in that. But then there are others of us who are going, come on, let's do something already. Right? When Bob Goff was here several years ago, he said, Bible studies are great, but we need to have some Bible doings. Like I kind of know what he's saying, you know? Like I don't need to learn anything else about the Bible because it says love your neighbor as yourself, and I'm not sure I'm doing a great job of that, so let me just focus on that for a while. It's both and, love of God, love of our neighbor. Uh, we sense to a significant degree that, that this year God is leading us to focus more as a church on, on all of this on loving our neighbors, on serving the poor, on caring for the needy and showing compassion. We actually have an outreach team that's been meeting for a while now um, and just exploring, okay, what does this look like? How do we use this building to reach out, this resource that God has given us? What would it look like for us to participate more in the life of, of downtown and the things that are happening and just be a good neighbor? Uh, we had a meeting with some downtown folks just the other day. Um, 
what's God calling us to do in terms of a focus with a neighborhood, whether that's Avondale or South Central or people in need? And so that's going on. Um, we are currently working on, you see that where you guys get coffee? A lot of you do. That wall is now black. And what is in the works is a love your neighbor wall, and meaning in the next, in a matter of weeks, not months. Uh, the idea is that we can come in here, and a lot of you are actually doing things already. You're actually involved with YWCA or Christian Ministries or various organizations, and you're serving and you're volunteering, and we just don't always know about these needs um, and these opportunities. And so just to have a way um, to kind of filter some of these, by the way, and uh, to put on there just a handful of ways that, that you can serve, that you can look up there and you can see the need and you can say, hey, my family and I, we can, we can show up this Saturday. Or my small group, maybe we can make a difference in that area to see pictures and stories of, of the ways that uh, we're doing this. So that wall is coming. I want to invite you just in general to be praying about this. That's one of my asks at the end of this, just to be praying for how God might lead us. Um, we're not naive, like some of this work, because it's messy. And so we want to have discernment. We want to be careful. We want to do this in ways that are empowering, actually are helping people out of poverty and not just continuing to enable uh, certain things. So be praying. We have one idea for Lent, and I can't say it because it's too crazy. And it might not be from God, but we're just kind of discerning. Is God asking us to do this? But it has to do with making a, a pretty big difference um, in our community uh, during Lent, which, by the way, is a time historically where there is almsgiving and care for the poor and so on. So I guess you'll know if I bring it up here in the next few weeks. Um, our mission as a church is to invite people to find hope in Jesus. That doesn't just mean invite people to show up on a Sunday morning. We, we were thinking way bigger than that. It's like with my life, with how I live, with everything we've been talking about, that people would see that and feel invited by our example to, to seek him um, and to grow closer to him. Final question. I heard this the other day. It's probably been a couple years. And I don't know who said it. If your church, if Commonway, were to disappear from Muncie, what would be the effect? I know that would be sad for us because then we have to find another church. But the question is like from a watching world, from the city, what would people think? Would people even notice we were gone? And again, I think the answer, there's ways we could say yes, and we want to celebrate that, and it's not all doom and gloom. But we have room to grow in this, and we sense this is what God is leading us into next. But just a heads up, being a light is costly. It's going to cost us money, probably, energy, yeah, uh, headaches, dang it, messiness, probably, some false starts, yeah, it's going to cost us. But we want to say yes to him and the work he's asking us to do in this time, in this place. I hope you'll join me. Would you stand with me and we'll pray?
Jesus, again, as we wrap up this series, um, we're so grateful for your example of what compassion looks like in action, of what love looks like, flesh and blood demonstrated to others. Jesus, may we take your example uh, joined with um, the cloud of witnesses that we're surrounded by, many of whom have done an incredible, incredible job of loving generously and sacrificially. And God, may we be inspired to do the same. Help us as a church, as common way to know what you're calling us to specifically in this community. And Lord, help us to have the courage to follow that, even when it costs us, even when it's not convenient. And Lord, at the end of the day, it's nothing to do with us or people thinking that we're great. We want people to see you. We want to demonstrate you that people would be drawn to you and your love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, have a great week. Hopefully we'll see you all Wednesday for our Ash Wednesday service.